And we're in Hebrews chapter 2. If you turn there with me. We're going to uh, begin reading in verse 13 and through the end of the chapter. Before we do, let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for um, our time together. We pray for those who still are not um, able to gather for different reasons. For those who um, just are not ever able to come who are shut in help us to have a greater appreciation for their situation um, help us to find ways as time goes forward to incorporate them more into the body and to the fellowship of of the saints and we know that we have this fellowship um, with with in a mystical supernatural way through the spirit too lord but you you give us physical bodies and a physical presence lord and even in the sacraments we have tangible signs and seals are able to touch feel and taste to know that you are real you are spiritual but even christ in heaven is as his glorified body and we'll see him as he is for we'll be as he is so lord we thank you for physical presence help us to um, not fall into some new normal where we decide that we can just live virtual lives through avatars or or whatever but that we find a way we make a way to be able to be physically present with one another so as churches work their way through this lord give them wisdom um, give them protection and as the world works through this lord i pray that they would see you that they would know there's a guide, that we are weak and you are strong, that you can flip a switch and it's over. But the switch that you have flipped is light and it's through your church. So help us, God, be light. And this we pray as we come to your word, give us light through what we hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 13, we pick up and read, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. So as we look at this, one of the things, and I'm just glad, you know, to, to pick a verse like this, is like, okay, he's talking about the coronavirus and people are afraid of dying. It's like, well, maybe that's part of what he, the Lord is talking about, but I'm just glad we picked Hebrews before this stuff happened so that, um, you know, this is just... God's word, all of God's word has something to say to us in every situation we're in. But this idea of fear of death is going to be a part of, of, of this theme, not just here, but throughout the book of Hebrews and even throughout the Bible. As we think about, you know, 
really when you think about it um, and you read commentaries about this, um, it's the idea of um, what's he mean by fear of death and to be subject to lifelong slavery. Who's he talking to? Um, because there are people who apparently, um, I mean, one thinks of kamikazes. You know, their thing was, you know, you're flying this plane in World War II and you, know, you kill yourself. Um, if they were afraid of death, maybe they wouldn't do that. So I started reading about kamikazes. Um, what is it they believe? Why would they do that kind of thing? How do they overcome a fear of death to do that? And, and so you start reading that sort of thing. It's just dark. It's like anything having to do with a culture of death. Um, it's, a, it's a darkness. Apparently, what was happening in World War II, if my sources on the interweb are correct, was, and it made sense, was that Japanese air power was vastly inferior to ours. Um, they had not modernized their planes well. They had lost a lot of planes in the, earlier in the war, and some of their best pilots were gone. And so what they did was they taught people how to fly a plane and taught them to fly it into something. You've got your, a big missile. We saw that happen at 9-11. People that would do this. But it wasn't because I have now lost my fear of death. It was because of a culture of death that they became slaves to that it drove them ultimately to death. And we have to be aware of this. It was a, it was a religion. It was a religion of um, honor. A religion of country. Um, a religion of um, family and ancestor worship, a lot of these things in different cultures and different religions. Um, but Satan desires one thing, and it is to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan desires death. Anytime we're looking at death, we're looking at the last enemy to be destroyed. And he says here that Satan has the power of death. Now, that's a difficult concept to wrap your head around, too, because the Bible is very clear that the Lord is the one who is sovereign over when one dies, how one dies, the length of one's life, how the path of your days, and these things. So it isn't that we get to live as long as Satan allows us, but it's the power of death in this sense of what happens after. Condemnation. So that we're also told in Scripture that everyone knows the truth. They suppress it in their sin. So if there is, and we all know what denial is like. If there's something that you just can't face, there are a lot of people who just can't see it. It doesn't matter what you do. They'll never be able to face the truth because it can't. And our brains are, are powerful things as we, um, not just biologically, but spiritually. If, if, if a person has made up their mind that something is not true or that something is true, to change that, it really takes a work of God. Even when there's evidence in front of their faces with these things. And what God is telling us here is that if we know the gospel, if we know the truth, if we see what God has done, then the work of Satan has all been undone and he has been destroyed. And so that we don't need to live in a fear of death. He's writing to a group of probably a Hebrew church could be a Hebrew church could be smaller, probably in Rome. They're suffering persecution, um, heavier persecution is coming through Nero. Um, 
God is preparing them through that and preparing us for things through this as well. And so if you think about it in this, if you're gathered together and you're going to be persecuted and it's like, what's going to happen to us? Well, we better be careful. We can't go out and do this because they might see us. We can't share the gospel in public because if we do that, we'll be more persecuted. It's like fear of death. That's fear of a man. God says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So you have to find out what are, you, what are you fearful of. And it can be a lot of different things. But fear is a powerful motivator. Fear can freeze you in your tracks and cause you not to do anything. But it can also cause you to, to jump, to run, to fight, to go off you know, things you would never do out of fear. And so what God says is perfect love casts out fear. Fear of death has put people in slavery, lifelong slavery. But Jesus has done something so that we can be, that can be removed. So what would that mean for our lives if we truly had no fear of death? Now, I'm not talking about you've now become invincible. You can jump in front of a car and it doesn't hurt you. And ha-ha, I can do stupid things, jump off buildings, do whatever I want to do um, because I won't be hurt. But that's different than it crippling your life as you move forward to do things you know that God is calling you to do because you know that if you do, it just pulls you away. So the thing that you fear will be the thing that controls you. So we have to be aware and be careful of the things that we fear. For God is in control. We fear Him. We follow Him. We trust Him. We don't fear man who can kill the body, but we fear Him who can kill us and then cast us into hell. These are things that we have to be aware of and, and to have faith in, to understand. So if our belief was greater and greater, if our faith was so tremendous that we just knew beyond shadows of a doubt what God has for us, how different would it cause us to live our lives and not to be concerned with the things that we see going on around us in the way that causes us to buy all the toilet paper in a store in a way that bless you, in a way, thank you for covering that, in a way that causes us all to go, oh my goodness, somebody sneezed in here, in a way that causes us to be wise, but also in a way that doesn't cause us to lose our faith because of fearful walking around as if we're some, I had a chihuahua, we always had, we had chihuahuas growing up, I have no reason, understanding of why, you get one and then you got to replace it with another one, you know, we just have one at a time, but um, they shook all the time, like a nervous little dog, you know, just shaking. And I always remember just, you know, stop shaking. They just, they just, and they have these big bug eyes, and, and they're mean um, to anybody outside the family. And one of the things we would joke about was that's how you know there's a God, because chihuahuas are this big, and they're not as big as Dobermans. And, um, but they just kind of, it was like they lived in a constant fear. <laughs> I don't know if it's actually fear or what, but... And just think of Christians sometimes, it can't be like that, where you run under the sofa. You know, you can't, you, you, you run away. You're barking and barking and barking, but you're hiding in fear. We can't live lives like that. And, and I'm not just talking about the virus. As a matter of fact, I'm tired of talking about the virus. What I'm talking about is anything, anything that causes us to, to live our lives fearful of what people might think, what people might say, um, what might happen to my job, what might happen to my life, what might happen to my relationships, what might, you know, all these things. If I follow Christ first, then what might I lose? What might I do to my children if I, if I follow Christ? What might I do to my, my job situation, my career, if I follow Christ? 
Now, hopefully, you can follow Christ and you see that God takes care of all these things. In verses 13 through 15, what we're going to see is that Jesus destroyed the evil one. And then in 16 and 17, we're going to see that Jesus propitiated the Holy One. So we're going to talk about what does that mean? And then the third thing we're going to look at is that Jesus helps the elect ones. So first, Jesus destroyed the evil one. So in 13 through 15, well, let's just look at um, beginning of 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, okay, since the children he's talking about, the people that God has given the children that the Father has given to Christ, believers, we have flesh and blood, then he himself had to partake of flesh and blood, the same things, so that through death, because he couldn't die if he didn't have flesh and blood, so he had to destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he destroys the devil, he destroys the evil one, and he delivers us. So Christ is our head, united to us. Um, so when he, we're, if we're connected to him by faith, he lives a perfect life, we got credit for living a perfect life. We're connected to him. So if we are evil and deserving of death, he is connected to us, though he himself is sinless, he is our head, the Bible says, so we had to die. So he dies, our head in our place, our representative, our, and he dies, so the body dies. Those united him by faith. He, our head, raised to life, the body is raised to life for our justification so that we are declared righteous as believers who are hidden in him. And that's how he destroyed the work of the devil. Because through the work of the devil, Adam and Eve fell into sin. We, Adam was our head. And he deserved death. We deserved death. And that was the only thing that could, could possibly be. So that, that power of death, the wages of sin, is death. And hold your place here. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning of verse 50. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Paul writes, he says, I'll tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the power of sin is the law. And that's death. Satan had the power of death. 
Satan has the law to be able to point to us in the presence of God and say, see, law says death, yet they live. You're unjust. Jesus, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, probably just says, look at me. And Satan is vanquished because he took the punishment. He fulfilled the law. He died in our place. So the power of death was defeated on the cross. So when Satan's power is the sting of death, the sting is the law. You, you take it, you know, bee stings you and loses its stinger and it dies eventually. And our sin has been nailed to the cross. And so this gives us, this gives us this great hope. So now we can move forward. Fear of death could be not just I'm scared I'm going to die, but it's like what's going to happen to me after I die? Does God really love me? Am I going to have to be judged? And am I going to, what's going to happen to me? And it's like move forward. God is for you. God is, God is working in you. God is working through you. You need to be able to proclaim his truth. You need to be able to walk in his truth. You need to be able to, to do what you know is right and good without fear of condemnation from him. Because Satan will also then come and attack you and say, who are you to say these things? Who are you to do these things? Who are you to live this kind of life? Who are you to sit in those pews? Who are you to stand behind that pulpit? Who are you? And then what you have to say is, I'm a Christian. I'm hidden in Christ. Get thee behind me, Satan. And then follow Christ. But you must follow Christ as a believer. So we don't fear death. He, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. So therefore we have overcome the world. He says, I've overcome the one with the power of death. So we've overcome the one with the power of death. He says, I have come that you might have life. So we have life. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it full. That's the verse where the thief comes to steal, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that's what he wants to do. But Jesus says, I've come that you can have life and have it full. Have full life in whatever circumstance. And so we need to be able to walk in that truth. That indeed, Christ defeated death through death. Adam in the garden was told, the day you eat, you shall die. He ate, that's it, death. For you and all your posterity. He's the head. He was our head. The first Adam. Jesus called the second Adam. The devil, Satan, led, it appears to be, a third of the angels from heaven to go into rebellion against God. A third. And how many angels are there? Myriads and myriads. It's like a, you know, that's kind of the Bible's way of saying it's a gozean. Yeah, a million, myriads and myriads. It's almost nigh innumerable. The vast host of heaven. A third. Talk about one of the, like, how in the world? <laughs> Angels who behold God in heaven, who know far more things about this truth than we're able to see, fell. I mean, what hope could there possibly be for us? So Satan succeeds. 
and leading a third of God's holy ones into rebellion. But there are elect angels, and they were saved from the fall. They're called elect angels. And there are elect people. But we weren't saved from the fall. We were saved out of the fall. And that's much, it's different. It's one thing, Satan sees this, sort of drives him maniacally, diabolically crazy that he couldn't get them all. But the wonder is that he could get any. He himself would even fall, but he did. And then there's Adam. Pinnacle of creation, this thing that's happening. And so Satan, I can get all of them. For some reason, God is creating mankind through procreation. All I have to do is get this one guy to fall. And that's it for everybody. And he succeeds. But then God does something unexpected, unimagined, unforeseen by Satan. And Adam and Eve don't die. And so theologians, and there's truths and all these things, they say, yeah, but they eventually died. But he said that day, well, you know, that day they died spiritually. Uh, yeah, I know, it's still, it's, uh, you know, splitting hairs there. I'm not sure that's what exactly he meant by that. I think he meant death. I mean, if, if Adam dies, there is no more humanity. You know, you just wiped out the whole race. You know, go back in time. You know, that sort of thing. But what we see that happened is they recognize their sin. They recognize their fallenness. They take fig leaves. They cover themselves up. Jesus comes. The you know, pre-incarnate Son of God, most likely. Yahweh walking in the cool of the days. Walking, where are you? Knowing where they are. Calling out to them. Allowing them to respond to him. And they, they, they come out. And he's, you know, you've sinned, you've done this thing. So he takes the skin of an animal and clothes them. So there's a substitutionary death. I'm sure Satan's watching this and just infuriated. It's like, that's not, how do you do that? That's not right. And then he hears, you know, the seed of the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. And... He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. So there's this foreseen thing. You will be crushed and destroyed. And he knows his time is short. Therefore, what you see in the book of Revelation and you see all through the, the Bible is this Satan trying to get control successfully for the most part of the world and guiding it against the people of God. And if you read the book of Revelation, you can see that happening symbolically, then you recognize the fact that that's what's happening. But God comes and delivers the church. No matter the earth itself opens wide to swallow the church. But because of Jesus Christ, because that animal skin, that substituted death in the garden, 
only could work because when Jesus, when God saw the blood of the animal clothed Adam and Eve with its skin, he foresaw his son dying on the cross and covering them with his righteousness so that Satan was defeated in the garden. Not because of anything Adam and Eve did, but because of what God did. Because God wanted to demonstrate forgiveness and mercy and holiness and justice all at the same time. So that Satan cannot charge God with wrongdoing in our forgiveness and justification. Because our death, our sin has been dealt with. And secondly, the way Jesus says this too is not just to destroy the devil and his power. But the problem with all that ultimately is you still have the holy God who the law represents his character. And you have people who've sinned against him. People who are evil and wicked. Us, much more sinful than we like to give ourselves credit for. In verse 16 and 17, For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So you got to deal with the word propitiation first. It's a big, long word. And it means the appeasing of God's wrath and anger rightly due to us because of our sin. If somebody is propitious towards us, it means they think favorably towards us. It's the opposite of somebody being angry. So the propitiation of Jesus Christ appeases God's wrath. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for whom did Christ die? If he died for the world, the wrath of God has been absorbed. There's no condemnation for the world. We know that's not the fact and so we get into a debate about for whom did Christ come to die. And we say it's for the church. Um, did Christ die to give opportunity for people to be saved? I've heard it said that even if no person ever turned to Christ, it would still be good, his death, because the Father would have been pleased with it. It would have been like, well, what a waste. Jesus came to rescue his church. Elect angels, elect people, an elect nation, offspring of Abraham. So that's the Jews, but we even know that a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but one who is one inwardly, who has circumcision of the heart. It's through faith. And then we're called, those who have faith, children of Abraham. So he's dying for the elect. He's made the Father propitious towards us, to be favorably disposed towards us. He, he, gives, he goes from restraining his righteous anger to lavishing his now righteous and holy love towards us. So no longer is God just restraining for what will come, but now it has happened and now he just lavishes his love on his people. A third of the angels followed Satan into rebellion. But the elect were kept. And if Satan defeated Adam, he defeated the entire human race. But because of what Christ did he can say where O death is thy victory where is thy sting and then we get to verses 17 and 18 
as we continue again to look at 17, but the idea now we look at is Jesus helps the elect ones. So he's destroyed the work of Satan. He's made the Father propitious towards us. He actually favorably looks at us. But then he does something else. He talks about helping us. So again, 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, and that's how he also propitiated us to the Father, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So this appears to be kind of the point of this particular letter here to this group and to us too. It's, you're being tempted. So how are they being tempted? How are we being tempted? What's this temptation? And ultimately temptation is to not follow your faith, to not be a believer. Um, and then you look at this, this thing about Jesus suffering when he was tempted. And it's like, well, how does Jesus suffer under temptation if there's, you know, did he, did he ever see something nice and go, man, I could steal that? Oh, I can't steal it because I'm the son of God. Oh, God, please help me not to. You know, it's sin. To desire the thing that's not his, his was sin. So he wouldn't see something that wasn't his and entertain for a second the idea of not having it. But he would suffer the lack of things. And so Jesus helps his elect ones. Those are of the offspring of Abraham. He helps us. We survive death. We die. We don't have the second death to touch us. And then he comes to our aid when we're being tempted. He comes to our aid. And that word help, it actually means to, to come to the cry. To, to run to the cry. The word actually is cry run for, to help somebody. When we were in, in Russia, I was trying to ask someone, you know, how do I, you know, we're walking around Russia by ourselves at times. It's like, how do I say help? You know, if I fall, break my leg, <laughs> you know, I'm yelling things in a foreign language and nobody knows what I'm saying. So the, the, our interpreter said, air. I said, good. Air. No, it wasn't our interpreter. It was somebody else we were talking to. Air. So then we went back and talked to my, our interpreter, and I said, learn a new word. And she said, what is it? I said, air. And she said, I, I don't know this word. I said, air, air. It's like, you know, you're out. And you say, air, air. People come and they, they help. And she said, maybe it is a colloquialism. I said, I don't know. So finally went back to the person. It's like, she, Larissa says that air does not mean help and so they talked and air is er which was a very popular tv show while we were there and she, they thought i was trying to say do you know how to say this in english or something and they said er they didn't call it er they called it air um, emergency it's cory pomish we learned how you say that but it's still not how you say help i guess if i yelled air air people in russia would say that's english for help we must run and help him i've seen that show but that's the type of help he's giving when you yell when crying out for help, he helps. He runs to the aid of. So that if you see the story of the, um, 
the, the father who had the son that was going to epileptic fit, I call him epileptic fits, but he'd go into seizures and foam at the mouth and he, Jesus shows up and um, the disciples are, are arguing with the Pharisees and a bunch of people and Jesus shows up and it's one of the times I think you see Jesus' temptation too. And so as we think about Jesus being tempted, and we think about him coming to our aid, I think the, one of the great temptations of Christ is, is his passive obedience. The active obedience of Christ is don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, don't do these things, tell the truth, do these. It's like, I got that. That's just who I am. But then the passive obedience is don't wipe people out when you see them sinning. It's like, what? Sometimes I just want to wipe them out. It's like, but even in our sin, that's how we would say it. But Jesus would be absolutely righteous in displays of wrath and anger. And he had displays of wrath and anger. But imagine, he turned the money changers' tables over. He did a quart of whips and ran them out. He did not kill them as he could have righteously done. But he couldn't do it and still be the Savior. So imagine the temptations. And your job is to be coming to their aid. And Judas, circle, betrayed. Peter, you can't go to the cross. Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter denies him. And what must that do to a person? Satan, you see the temptations of Satan goes to him and says, you know, prove that you're the son of God. Maybe, you know, but he's thinking, as a human, you know, am I sure I'm the son of God? Yes, I'm the son of God. You don't have to prove it. Don't prove it to people. Uh, you know, throw yourself off. Show them that the, uh, you make it a public spectacle and show that you won't get hurt. And this way people will believe you. I have to do what the Father says. I can't do these things. Worship me and I'll give you the kingdom without a cross. Worship me and you can do this all, without all the suffering. No, I have to go through this. I mean, imagine the suffering that he had to go through just to withhold himself. And when he shows up, with this, the crowds are arguing with the disciples. And he says, what are y'all arguing about? Because he was Southern, says y'all. And, and somebody from the crowd yells out at him. I brought my son to be healed, and they can't do it. And you see, you hear it, I mean, you read it, Jesus' frustration with them. What? You have little faith. And then the father says, if you can heal him, will you please heal him. And he says, if you can. I mean, you just hear it in Jesus' voice. So you just read it in the face. If you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And he, and he heals the boy. He says, if you can help me, and that's that word, if you can run to my crying aid. He says, if you can believe, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Come run to my cry for need for my unbelief. And Jesus dies. And that's what he does. He helps those who are being tempted. But it's the offspring of Abraham, not the offspring of Adam, that he helps. So you have to be in Christ. Those who are in Christ are the offspring of Abraham. But he helps us. When? 
all the time, but particularly here when you're being tempted. Because when you're going through trials and you're going through temptations and you're going through difficulties and you're going through things that could lead to your death, there is a temptation to wonder, is God for me? Should I do this? Can I believe what God is telling me? Do I, am I really who God says I am? Do I really have some special plan? Does God really have a special place for my life? Is my life really more valuable than a sparrow? Um, I see bad things happening to me, from me, through me, around me. Does that mean that God is against me even though he says he's for me? You know, all these things. And so we're tempted to do things out of unbelief. And we have to be very careful. But he comes to our aid because he's a faithful high priest who's been tempted somehow in all things. And when he suffered, when he was tempted, and therefore he can understand our suffering when we go through these things. It's not like you're going to a God who is just like, I, you know, angels didn't even suffer in the way that Jesus did so that he's able to understand us. And it's in this way that he destroyed the power of death. And that's why he had to be made like us, so that God is for us, and that no one can therefore be against us. He can come to our cry for help. He runs to our cries for help. We need to cry for help at the right times. But we need to be aware that he loves us. He's done all of this for us. And it wasn't angels that he helped. It's the offspring of Abraham. We are heirs according to the promise. So let's pray. Father God, please help us to walk in this safety. To know that whatever happens to us, as we walk in the light, as we walk in wisdom, we walk in grace and holiness, we, we, we try to follow you in every way. We know that difficulties and trials are going to come our way. Help us to be faithful, knowing that when temptations come, help us to be reminded that you went through temptations too. And that somehow you understand that there's a compassion, that there's just not a desire to not be angry. But we know when there's somebody in our lives that can come along beside us and not just say it's okay, but say I've been through it. I know what you're going through. It makes the difference. So help us to remember Christ. That when your spirit whispers these things or our hearts yells these things at us through your word, that, that you get it. You've been through these things too. Not exactly the same details in every sense, but you understand. And you have compassion and you have empathy. You weep with us when we weep. You rejoice with us when we rejoice and we're to do the same with our brothers and sisters. But help us to remember when we pray to you, it is a compassionate ear that is turned towards us. It is an understanding heart that beat like ours beats. We can't fathom really how. Help us just to trust that you put up with us. You bear with us because you love us deeply. 
as we come to your table, Lord, you give that to us that we might remember the depth of your love for us. As we pray in Christ's name, amen.